Uh, some of you were nice enough to show up yesterday at a storage facility in South Topeka to help unload a, a moving van as we welcomed the Golden children, the Golden family here. They're going to be staying with us for a while. So, you know, for right now, uh, Kathy's in my household, we're a multi-generational family. And by that I mean that there's three generations in our household right now. How many here... How many here have right now or have had in your past, you've been part of a family, part of a household in which there were more than two generations represented as permanent or semi-permanent, not, not, yeah, not visitors, but okay, very few, right? Just a few, just a few households. Today, that's very uncommon, isn't it? But not so uncommon historically. When I was... Uh, growing up, uh, we all knew in, in my home that my dad really, what would be the best word? My dad had a certain dread of, of ending his life in a nursing home. Uh, my dad's mother died when he was nine, and he was raised by his maternal grandmother and his maternal aunt, who later became his stepmother. And dad, these gals raised him into adulthood, and they're really the mothers that he remembered, that he knew and remembered. Each of them, slowly in their elderly ages, they dwindled mentally and physically, and the end of both of their lives was this diminishing life in a bed in a nursing home. So I grew up uh, taken to a facility right here in Topeka, Sunday afternoons with my dad, and I, Dad told me to kiss this woman he called Popo. When he was a kid, they couldn't pronounce her name, Mrs. Porter, so they called her Popo. And I didn't, I had, I was clueless, right? And for me as a little kid, it was a little intimidating. There was an old brown-skinned, shriveled woman in a bed, couldn't respond back, but we'd be there every Sunday. Well, that was that was the woman that raised my father. She she had no coherence. Her daughter, Jimmy, who became my dad's stepmother, she would say, as she got a little older, all of us knew this, I hope I don't follow my mom. But that's exactly what she did. So my dad saw his stepmother also go through the same process. My kids grew up going to a nursing home here in Topeka, kissing a little white-haired woman that they weren't sure and who could not interact with them either. Uh, when they were kids, because that was my grand, that was the grandmother I knew on my dad's side. When dad was getting older, mom had died. He was still living far longer than would have been good for him in the big three-story house I grew up in. And it got to the point where he was falling down. It's clear he cannot live on his own. And we're like, Dad, you got to move. You know, this just is untenable. So he's finally willing to. But then the question was, where does he go? Right. <laughs> This is the guy everyone knows does not want to go to a nursing home. Well, my sister Mary had a home that had a little elevator in it, and it could take Dad up and down to this living quarters in their lower level. And Mary and her family, God bless them, they were willing to take Dad in. You can imagine, this is adjustments. If you've, if you've lived this, you know, this requires adjustments and flexibility and hurt feelings and forgiveness right all over the place when you do this, but they were willing to. And so dad was able, he actually kept his mind right to the end. But he got to live the last few years of his life with his daughter's family, with those challenges, but in a family situation. 
And then he died peacefully with his children and grandchildren around him, committing his spirit to the Lord who gave it. That was, that was like death in my view, about as good as it comes. But that was the way his life wound down. Guys, as we're thinking about taking care of extended family members today, members of our own family or grandparents or aunts or uncles, what goes through our mind? And what do we feel that we're on the hook for or we're not on the hook for? Do you know what I mean? If somebody in your family, if your parents or your children needed help, what sense of responsibility do we have? And what sense of responsibility should we have? Whether it's, it's merely for members of our own household families, or if it's for the larger family and household of God. What's our responsibility and what's God's take on that? We're in the God's House series this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 5. And this, this issue, very practical issue, right? Comes up in spades. It's true today for us as it was for them a long time ago. Remember this series title comes from chapter 3, verse 15 of 1 Timothy when Paul told Tim that the church of the living God is the household of God. The church is the place on earth that God says, that's my home. And that means that we are His family members. We are not merely folks who show up at the same place. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That comes fully to bear this morning in the message from chapter 5. And by the way, as we go through this, some of you here, this is not on your radar. What we'll be talking about this morning, it's not on your radar. It's not an issue. It's not an issue you see now or can foresee for the future. And that's okay. Just store this. File it. For others of you, you may be thinking right now, I've got to make, I'm thinking about provision for my parents. Or I'm an aging parent thinking, what am I going to do five years from now when my health fails? What does that look like for me, coming or going, right? Guys, also, please don't, I'm not putting a burden on anybody's shoulders this morning, okay? This is going to look different for us. Uh, Kathy and I have gone through this with both sets of parents. The support you and I may be called to give to our parents could be different from one family to another. The support this church gives to our own members can be different from one family, one person to another. It can look different in different churches. What we've got this morning are very clear directions on one hand to the situation Paul's speaking into. We've also got very clear principles. Okay, But what that looks like for a particular family or individual worked out That's going to vary individual to individual, family to family, and church to church. We're going to be in chapter 5. And guys, I'm actually going to bring in two verses from chapter 6 as well uh, just to to pull together this family element. This is a lot of verses again this morning. But relationships in the family of God. If you've got your Bible, this is from the ESV. Chapter 5, Paul had already said what kind of leaders, exemplary lives, leaders needed to have in the church. He said to Timothy, Tim, you've got to lead an exemplary life. And then he starts applying some more about what that would look like. So in chapter 5, verse 1, he says to Tim, through Tim to us, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. If you want to, turn the page in your own Bibles to chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Skipping ahead, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. One of the things you see coming up in spades in this epistle is that 
there's not only a concern by Paul about the specific directions he's giving being implemented in the church, but a lot of this has to do so that you don't denigrate the message of the Gospel. That you guys live out God's call in your life so that when the pagan world around you hears the Gospel, they don't have a reason to say, I'm not interested. Verse 2 there, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So look at the way Paul's framing all the relationships in the church, in the body of Christ. He's saying they are all familial. So that he says, as you guys in Ephesus, you're looking around at each other, those older men in the church, you should esteem them and interact with them like they're your own father. And the older women in the church, remember we're saying Timothy's younger, that's a relative term, probably less than 40. Those older women in the church, Tim, you should look up to, you should honor and respect just like they were your own mother. And then your peers and those, those your age and below your age, you should understand that those are your brothers and sisters. He's bringing this whole nuclear family image to the church. And isn't that great? That you're not just people who go to the same building who attend the same meetings. You are, in fact, in the best and the fullest way possible, you are family members in the household of faith in God's family. So, Each person you and I interact with that's another Christian is not merely another Christian, but they're your brother or sister, mother or father in the household of faith. And that that implies an intimacy, a level of concern, care, love, respect that we often lack. Guys, here's another thing too though. Many people in our church have a noble vision for their own family. That is, they want to get married. They want to have a godly, Christ-honoring marriage. They want to raise kids to grow up and know the Lord and serve the Lord. All which is great. And they hope their kids, like I do, have kids and raise them up to know the Lord and serve Him right. That's what we want. And that's great. But friends, that is an insufficient view of family in the household of faith. Every family you and I come from comes on the scene one generation at a time, comes and goes. God is more interested in His family than our family. We need a vision for God's household and family that's equal to and bigger than the vision we have for our own families of origin. And this comes out in this epistle and many other places as well. Matter of fact, if you think back to the Gospels, when Jesus' nuclear family of origin comes to seek Him out, and they say, hey, your mom, your siblings are here, Jesus. And He says, who is my mother or brother, father, sisters? They're those in the household of faith. They're those who do the will of God. So we need to have a vision as big as God's vision for His family. Not just our family of origin. For His family. Let me just mention, because it comes up here, in regards to slavery, guys, when you read about slavery, especially in the New Testament, do not read an American 21st century context back into the passage which for us almost all if you say slavery to an american we're thinking of the american south right before the civil war for americans slavery is defined by the american experience this is not true contextually and it's not true historically slavery almost since the inception of humanity has been part of the economy of the world slavery was often seen and was a very benevolent relationship in which people were guaranteed 
a house and food and clothing. We don't want to read our context back into this message for sure. So here, Paul tells those who are slaves, and he elevates the relationship again. He says to the slaves, you have a master, okay? But then he says, slaves, you don't just treat your master like a master, you treat him like a brother in Christ. The spiritual relationship takes precedence over the merely human or economic. You treat your master, don't diss him because he's a brother, elevate him because spiritually he's your brother. If you read the little epistle to Philemon, you hear Paul saying the flip of that. He says to Philemon about his now-believing servant slave Onesimus, he says, don't treat him merely as a slave, but as a brother. It's the same thing. That the relationships they started with weren't ultimately defining. It was the relationship in the body of Christ. That was the thing. So in God's household, Paul says, we're really bringing the best version of what a godly life in a family of origin or nuclear family would look like, we're bringing that into the larger household of faith. We're bringing that respect and care and love and hope to our relationships in this larger household. Now you get down to verse 3, and by the way, this is the longest treatment of anything in this epistle, which is interesting. It's about the care for people in the body of Christ. That's the biggest theme here. It's the longest theme in the epistle. Verse 3, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. And this is the rest of the passage. Honor widows who are truly widows. Guys, the term widow is zera, and it means, by definition, to be bereft, to be sterile, to be barren. When you called someone a widow, you were describing someone who had lost significantly in life, by definition. So Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. That term honor in the Greek is timao. By the way, that's part of Timothy's name, timao and theos. Timotheus means to honor God. But the term means to honor, and by definition it means to fix a value on, by implication to revere and to value. Guys, this word, not always, but regularly, this word implies more than respect, or obedience, it implies material aid for. So you remember when the, <clears throat> the commandment in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, uh, honor your father and your mother, right? Which we typically say, obey and respect. And it, it means that, and that's, that's good. But in the Gospels in Mark 7, when Jesus says to the religious leaders of His day, you guys are giving precedence to your own teachings over God's Word, he says that to honor your parents meant to give them material financial aid. And that's the thought here too. So Paul says, honor, give material aid to those in your midst who are truly widows. Philip Towner in his commentary says it like this, provide the support, material support, financial support, that honor demands. Isn't that good? Provide the material support for the widows in your midst who have lost the material aid that honoring them simply requires. That that should be a given. Uh, we're going to read through the rest of this passage now and then we'll come up and pick up a couple key points. So this is starting back at verse 4 and then going through verse 16. So he continues here. The church is already honoring widows. 
But Paul says you're doing it in a way that will not work long term. And so we're going to refine the way you're doing this. So starting at verse 4, he says, but, so honor widows who are widows indeed. Some translations say truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, and it's defined here, she's left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Some women were being supported that in fact didn't need the church's support. Self-indulgent may refer to women who already had financial means the church didn't need to support, and they were simply spending their money in a self-indulgent manner. Verse 7, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We'll come back to that verse later. Let a widow be enrolled, that is, put on the official church support list, If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. There's a variety of options, by the way, guys, on what this all looks like or means. Best guess is that gals who were widowed and younger were marrying pagan men and were therefore forsaking the faith. Paul's conclusion for younger widows is, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Some have already strayed after Satan. We covered those verses uh, in chapter 2. Last, verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So guys, the church is doing a good thing. The church is supporting materially and financially widows, those who have lost but they're doing so in such a way that Paul says misses the mark. There's a list of verses on your study sheet we're not going to go through. But if you look through the Old Testament and the New, you'll see that God always expresses care for the most vulnerable. So whether it's in the law, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, the person who's not part of the covenant community but is temporarily with them, those are the most vulnerable in the community. And God has specific directions for their provision and care in the law. You know, when you read the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth not only gives us the lineage of Jesus, which is key, but the the story of Ruth and Naomi is the story about God's care and provision for two widows. What's the younger widow do in this story? She remarries and has a family. What's the older widow do? She's cared for in the household of her now secondary, if you will, son-in-law. Would that be right? Son-in-law, yeah. It's a great story, but it's upholding that, that kind of command and interest God had 
all along, you get to Acts 6 in the early life of the church, you see the church was already in the very first days was providing for widows in Acts chapter 6 there in Jerusalem. So God's always had this care for the most vulnerable in the covenant community. So here Paul says, some widows should be cared for by the church and some should not. Now guys, right from the start, if you say you're now making a distinction between people in the church who are going to get church support and those who aren't, most of us are saying, what is going on? Shouldn't they all get it? Paul says, no, they shouldn't. That godly charity is done within certain parameters that make sense as far as God sees His own family. So, Paul says some women who are widows should not be supported by the church. And he tells us who they were. Verses 4 and 16 Widows who have family, extended family or otherwise, families of origin, he said, should first be providing for their own. You know the old phrase, a charity begins at home. That's exactly the thought here. Paul, that's why he defined widows who are truly widows, or widows indeed. If a widow has family members that are there and available, those family members, he said, should be providing for her, not the church. Guys, there's a lot of times that you and I will have needs in which the church should not be the first reference for us to come and get help from. Our own family should be. So Paul says if they've got provision through family members, the church should not be supporting them. He says in verses 9-15, through 15, this is the list he went down. By the way, is that a lengthy list? Don't support a woman who's... Uh, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead. Let me, let me take the first one first. Younger widows are not placed on the official list either. So younger is less than 60. You know, with just thinking of longevity, uh, today we might say 65, 70, 75. The thought here is probably twofold. These women are too old to remarry and have another family. They're also probably old enough that they're physically not able to provide for their own needs. So, if they're younger, he says, they should remarry. Again, in our culture, this sounds pretty strange, but marriage was the normal means throughout history that God provided for the most vulnerable, for women and for children and for orphans. And that was the case here. He says if they're younger, the encouragement is to remarry and start or restart another family. And then last in verses 10 and 11, he said widows who had not lived exemplary lives. And this is where this comes across a little differently, doesn't it? So he says, he says uh, they're characterized by marital faithfulness. They're the wife of one man. In fact, the phrase there is the same, flipped, out of 1 Timothy 2 when it says elders had to be one wife Man, they had to be characterized by faithfulness to their spouse. That's said here about the widows. They had to have been faithful as parents and homemakers. And then last, and this was the extensive list, they had to be hospitable and humble in service to others. It's a long list. So that ultimately Paul says, widows who had lived exemplary lives were to be put on the list, but widows who had not lived exemplary lives were not to be put on the list. It's a lot like the qualifications for elders and deacons in chapter 3, and it actually found, sounds a lot like the exemplary life Timothy himself was called to as well. So they're not on the list. The question, of course, arises, 
If they're not on the church's support list, how would those gals get support? Guys, there's an interesting thing. I I think we think today that we've got a pretty good bead on God's call in the family, but we have nothing on the pagan Roman world of Paul's day. We did a series, it was a year ago. uh, I think it was called The Church's Family, I believe. You can look that up online. The Romans had a very highly defined sense of family loyalty. When they married and arranged marriages, it was for the benefit of the family. Everything was about family loyalty. Maybe not quite the way you would see today in Asian cultures, today or historically, but they had a very highly refined sense of loyalty and provision to your families. When a woman was given a dowry then, that dowry was meant to be kept and invested and interest would be accrued so that if her husband died, the dowry was still available to provide for her needs. And in fact, if she had grown sons, she would go to one of those sons' households, they would take her in, and the dowry, those finances would come with her to provide for her. By the way, also the Roman culture had a welfare system back in the day. And it broke them, especially in Rome. Very interesting, some of the comparisons with where we're at today as well. But they had a welfare system as well, generally related to those who were impoverished could get material aid by the way of food. So there were other provisions in the Roman society of that day. So some women were not put on the rolls. We had a... uh, we had a situation in this church many years ago in which there was an elderly lady who was physically restrained, couldn't, couldn't work, became part of the church. It was great, great. And she had needs, and so we're good with this, right? So we help her get an apartment, and we buy her appliances. We help pay for her utilities. And I got a call from her one time, and it was to complain at the level of support she was not getting from this church. And so I just said, hey, really appreciate that. Do me a favor. Read 1 Timothy 5 and then call me back. So I waited a while. She called back. And she said, Mike, I realize the church doesn't owe me anything. And I said, you're right. We don't. Because everyone knew her lifestyle. She did not qualify on 1 Timothy 5 grounds. We said, we're glad to help you. But you don't qualify. And there's no necessity on this church to give you what you think is your due. She didn't qualify. She wouldn't have qualified on Paul's list in Ephesus either. Which didn't mean she was out in the cold. But she got it. That's not me. That person described her. Nope, that's not me. Okay, now we're on the same page. Now you can appreciate the help the church gives and we're glad to help you in the ways we think is appropriate and helpful, ultimately. So, who is going to be supported then? And guys, it's the flip side of that same passage. So, Verse 5, true widows, they have no extended family to take care of them. In that culture, that would have been the case. Verse 9, over 60. Again, today, maybe it's over 70. But again, can't start a new family and may not be able to care for it myself. And verses 9 and 10, an exemplary life. That's who would be added to the church official support list. Now, go back to verse 8 for just a minute. Uh, we, we want to get the good or the emphasis God's got for us in this passage. And part of it comes out in verse 8. Verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially, we're talking nuclear family at this point, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Remember that the Roman Greek culture this was written in had a high value on family. They, they believed in taking care of their own. Everything was about family provision and family loyalty. Family honor. In this culture, if the church looked like it didn't take care of its own, it would have minimized the impact of the Gospel. The pagans who didn't know Christ would point at Christians and say, what's wrong with them? That's pretty strong language. If the world calls us to account, we've got the shoe on the wrong foot, right? He says, Paul implies something like this, if Gentiles who don't know the saving grace of God in Christ still know enough to care for their own, how could someone who claims to be in the family of God to have received the costly gift of salvation not care for those in their family or their family of faith? How does that work? How do you get there? Paul's concerned both that widows are provided for but also that the church and the gospel aren't viewed negatively by the pagan world around them that esteem family, provision, and loyalty higher, more appropriately, than the church itself did. Verse 4 there said again, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Charity begins at home. Paul says here, godliness begins at home. Do you remember we talked about that term last week? Yusabeh? Christ-likeness ultimately. He says it begins at home. That we're supposed to have this attitude that we it's a given that we would provide for those of our own household. That's not a stretch. That's not, not something I have to think about. You guys, depending on your age, you'll, you'll, at some point you'll be part of this process. Uh, Kathy and I uh, have buried all of our parents and we've gone through iterations of what this looks like. You know, and uh, financial sometimes. It was a given because we knew what 1 Timothy 5 said. If our parents are in need, it's a given that we provide for them appropriately as we're able to. One of the things we learned to say was, Mom and Dad, this is what we can do. We cannot do that. It was within our own limitations, right? But mowing the yard, paying bills, getting them to doctors or the store, or writing checks for their support, whatever it was, that was just a given. It wasn't something we had to think about, right? It was just... How much can we do? What can we do? What can we not do? What do we have to say? You're going to have to get someone else to help with this. But we're, we're glad to do this for you because we understand this is, the, this is the basement simply of family loyal love. We're caring for our own. Towner, Philip Towner in his commentary again says this, this is neglect of provision for relatives that is unfathomable even among unregenerate society. Paul says basically the Gospel's on the line in the way you guys treat each other. They're not going to listen to the message that Christ saves us from people who don't take care of their own. Guys, this comes up again. This is a big, big deal to God and in the Scriptures. James 2, James says, is it possible that a person who behaves like this, is it possible that they even have faith in Christ? If a brother or sister... In the faith, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, verbally, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, this is a famous passage, it's a debated passage in what this actually looks like. But James says, don't tell me you have faith in God if you're unwilling to take care of appropriately so again. This isn't without bounds or reservations, right? Appropriately, if you're unwilling to take care of your brothers and sisters in the faith whom God the Father loves as much as He loves you. First John says it this way, by this we know love. How do we know love? Christ laid down His life for us. We know love because God did something for us. He didn't say nice platitudes. He did something for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is the family of faith again. Those are who we are related to by faith. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John infers God's love cannot abide in that person. Little children, let us not love in word or talk or tongue, but in deed and truth. That's strong language, isn't it? But just about... James says, don't tell me you have faith if you're not willing to care for brothers and sisters in the faith. And John says, is it even possible that the love of God resides in the person who's unwilling to care for their brother and sister in the faith? Now guys, what does this look like for you and I today? Because our situations are not the same. You and I will live in a, a welfare system. And it, it changes everything. We live in a welfare system in which the government takes taxes from all of us and then redistributes it. Probably all of us here have a gripe against one form or another, right? Of government welfare. <clears throat> There's an upside to government welfare though, isn't there? We, we would say we have a social safety net. We would say in the States, if someone needs medical care, if they need housing, whatever they need, there's no reason a person in this country can't get medical care, housing, food, shelter. Here in Topeka, we, we've got these, uh, these options in spades. It's available. That in itself is a good thing. That Someone doesn't fall through the cracks. They don't suffer unnecessarily. That's a good thing. We're, we're glad for that. However, the downside of the welfare system is immense. It's incalculable. The desire to do good through helping people financially, just like what's going on here, right? The church, well-intentioned, is supporting women. Paul says you shouldn't. And the welfare system, unguarded as it is today, is supporting people that it shouldn't. Or in ways it shouldn't. And guys, part of what's happened is this, hugely so, the government has replaced fathers and churches and families financially and this has had devastating effects across this culture. Incalculable generation after generation after generation. The mere fact that welfare options are available to us, guys, as believers, members of the household of faith, does not mean we should take advantage of them. The fact that they're there does not mean we should use them. The fact that they're available does, or being used does not mean that the church shouldn't also get involved in the care for someone. The, the state welfare system does not ultimately determine what the church does or what the family of faith does. It's there, and this is, this is where part of the discernment comes in. What's appropriate and what isn't? And we're not getting the dust settled on this today. We're simply recognizing that there are complications for what this looks like in our day and age. 
before the state really became Uncle Sam and now Father to us all, guys, it was always historically the church in the West. The church in the West was the group that took care of widows and orphans and started orphanages and started hospitals. The church was always the motivation, the motivators behind this. Because the love engendered in the family of faith, that spilled out to those outside the family of faith. When the government comes in and usurps that authority and that role, it messes all kinds of things up. So we don't want to ultimately be defined in our giving and support by what the government is willing to do for us or is doing. It's an issue to take consideration, but it's not ultimately defining. Guys, when the dust settles on this as well, we who have received adoption into the household of faith because Jesus died for our sins, it's incumbent on us to have our Father's and our Savior's view of other members in His household and family. This should just go without saying. Christ died for us, rose for us, brings us into His family so we can enjoy the benefits of membership in the family of God forever. Nothing we ever do for each other or anyone else will ever compare to what God in Christ has done for us. But the love of God in Christ should become part of our model for how we look at and care for each other, families of origin and family of faith as well. Guys, you and I were spiritually bankrupt. Remember Paul said, He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we could become rich in Him. We have the riches of heaven forever because Jesus came down, bankrupted Himself, you could say, spiritually on the cross for our sins. We were outside the household of faith. Ephesians 4 says we were without God and we were without hope. He afforded us adoption and inclusion as sons and daughters in the Father's household. We still don't know what this looks like, guys. We still don't know the good of this. And we won't know it until we see Him. We were beggars spiritually. He brought us to His home and set us at His Father's table. That's the model we have. That's our loving Father. That's our loving Savior. That should characterize our interaction with each other. So, concluding. On one hand, to give material aid to those who can and should provide for themselves or who should be provided for by others falls short of wise, godly charity. Paul speaks correctively here. You're, you're supporting too many people. People the church shouldn't support. On the other hand, to fail to give material aid to members of the family of faith when such aid is needed is a betrayal of the very foundation of faith and membership in God's household. So we need to take this really, really seriously. Guys, again, concluding word. What this looks like for you and me going forward, I'm not trying to say. But these are the principles we need to bring to bear when we're thinking about aging parents. Or I'm the aging parent and what do I do going forward? Or I know of needs in the church. What's incumbent on the church to provide for? And what isn't? It requires wisdom. But we've got to start with this foundation of this is God's call to His kids. It's simply that the Spirit of Christ in us has the Father's love and wisdom. And that we're to walk out that love and wisdom with each other. First things, let's pray.
Father, thanks for sparing no expense in providing our salvation. Lord Jesus, thanks for Your incarnation. Thanks for Your substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. Thanks for Your resurrection for our justification so that we could be made righteous, could be adopted, could experience new birth into the family of God. Lord, we are always in Your debt. And I just pray for us this morning, Lord, that You'd help us to see a little bit of what that requires of us in the care that we have for each other. Father, would You help us now out of grateful hearts, out of hearts overflowing with the good You've shown us, simply declare Your glory and Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.